0: Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly.
1: From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis.
0: Though it was originally panned by many critics, the Rolling Stones' 1972 album Exile on Main Street is now considered a masterpiece. Up next, a classic album dissection of Exile, a recording that's still shrouded in mystique 45 years later.
1: Plus, we examine the lasting influence of Exile on Main Street for generations of musicians ever since. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions.
0: You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. He is Greg Cott. And if you listen to the show, you know that from time to time we do a classic album dissection. Digging deep into a record that we both consider a classic. And Greg, it is nothing less than astounding that uh, (laughs) while we've talked about the Rolling Stones quite a bit, we've never done a Stones album. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? And there's only one to do, Exile on Main Street. Greg and I have written one book together, The Beatles versus The Rolling Stones. It wasn't our idea. It's kind of hokey. But we had fun with it. It was a back-and-forth comparing these two bands that arguably were the most important groups in the world throughout the 60s. Uh, the Beatles break up, and The Stones don't have that pushback anymore from another artist that is always pushing them higher. There's that competition throughout the 60s, in the studio, on stage... Both bands making the other better. Where are we at in 1972? The Stones formed in 62. They're a decade into a career. They've been the biggest band in the world, sharing that title with the Beatles, but the Beatles are gone. Uh, we are in the post-60s malaise. We think for a moment there's that utopia of peace and love, Woodstock, the 60s, the youth culture, you know, all that stuff you've heard your parents talk about, hmm. right? Um, And now the Stones are in the hangover phase, right? Altamont, they watch a man beaten to death in front of them while they're on stage playing Under My Thumb. Uh, They have experienced all the highs and lows imaginable. They are the Caligula of our time. (laughs) Absolute power corrupts absolutely. They're rich beyond description, uh, and they're burned out. They release a fine, fine album, Sticky Fingers, in 71. It's a classic rock record, right? Wonderful hits. Brown Sugar, uh, Can't You Hear Me Knocking, Wild Horses. They're at the peak of of their songwriting, and they're in the studio making great recordings. Uh, Where do they go now? Brian Jones is dead. He's passed in 1968, the founder of the band. In many ways, their secret weapon all through the 60s never got as much credit as he deserved. Altamont lingers. They are in tax exile. They have made so much money, they can no longer afford to live in the United Kingdom, so they all moved to various parts of France. Jagger is busy getting married to Bianca and having their only child together, Jade. Keith is busy uh, with heroin. He's with Anita Pallenberg. They are both in the depths of heroin addiction. Uh, You know, where do they go creatively? What's left to prove? What's left to do? You know, what is there left to say in Hmm. rock and roll? I think that's where Exile on Main Street starts. The title literally referring to them being tax exiles.
1: Well, and, you know, I think it's important to note, too, Jim, that they were coming off a run of pretty good records. They had sort of remade themselves with Jimmy Miller taking over as a producer with Beggar's Banquet in 68, Let It Bleed in 69, and then Sticky Fingers in 71, as you pointed out. Uh, So they were coming off a pretty good run of, of really great rock and roll records with Mick Taylor uh, taking over as the uh, second guitarist to Keith Richards, filling in for, filling Brian, in Jones. for Brian Jones, right? Um, so you know this this whole tax exile business. You know we're exiles in our own country. Uh, they go to France. You know it's not a bad deal to be an exile in France in a yeah, villa. I mean, you know I, I, I could live with that. I could live with that. <laughs> you know so here's this ten thousand dollar a month villa that uh, Richards is renting, and Ian Stewart, who is sort of the piano player slash roadie slash, uh, uh, dead, mother. dead yeah. mother,
0: soul of the band,
1: their best mate. He does everything. He's, his job, he's enlisted to find a place to record this new album in France. He, he settles on Keith Richard's basement at the Villa. Yeah. And, um, you know, everybody's kind of looking at him like, really? Uh, but it did have a tremendous advantage. The band's least controllable member was on the premises at all times. 24-7. So, wasn't
0: always conscious, uh, Keith, 24-7.
1: Right. Have we ever nailed this
0: down? I mean, I don't think we managed to for the book. Um, it has been said, and this may be apocryphal, that Cote had been the Gestapo headquarters in Nice.
1: Well, apparently uh, Keith uh, told that story, and uh, a couple of the engineers in the recording session have verified it. In fact, there were um, gold-plated swastikas in the uh, heating vents, In the hallways so there was some uh, residue of Nazi occupation in this villa so you shouldn't be thinking beach house
0: you should be apparently the basement was dank and damp and foreboding not not a wonderful place uh, to be a clubhouse
1: they they wrote a song while they were there called ventilator blues which was basically an ode to the one fan in the window in that basement uh, that tried to keep that place ventilated
0: So, Greg, as we're saying, an incredibly dense and complicated record, a double album, 18 songs. I think the best way for us to begin to get a handle on the magic and the, uh, the murk of Exile on Main Street is to talk about some of the tunes. I'm going to talk about the very first track on the album, and later I'll talk about the penultimate track. It opens with a song called Rocks Off. If we look at the lyrics, this is Keith writing about heroin addiction I'm zipping through the days at lightning speed plug in flush out and fire the blanking feed heading for the overload splattered on the dirty road kick me like you've kicked before I can't even feel the pain no more I think it's about more though he's talking about blissing out on heroin he's talking about not having a voice at the same time uh, the rhythm is ferocious and driving forward this is the hardest rocking song on the album The guitar riff is one of the all time great Stone's Mm -hmm. guitar riffs. And then we have this psychedelic breakdown in the middle of the song. that i think uh we argue about this in our book i I love their satanic majesty's request i don't think the stones were only dabbling in psychedelia or making fun of the beatles sergeant peppers i think the the darkness you know there is good trip psychedelia Mm, there's bad trip psychedelia here we have this bad trip in the middle of the song this weird breakdown and then it kicks in again it all builds to the choruses. I can only get my rocks off while I'm dreaming. You are among the richest, most famous, most fabulously successful people in the universe. You are a Roman emperor. You are Caligula. Mm. Uh, and, and and you've had every pleasure that's imaginable, mm. that's available. And now you can't even imagine pleasure anymore except when you're dreaming. Right? What an awful place to be. Uh, where do you go from there? And that's where they start the album. Here's Rocks Off by the Rolling Stones. Yeah.
1: Rocks Off by the Rolling Stones, the track that kicks off Exile on Main Street, their classic 1972 album. Jim, uh, you know, you mentioned that that's the hardest rocking song on the album. Uh, I think it's a close contender with that and, and the following song, Rip This Joint. Um, yeah, that, that's pretty ferocious, might too. Might be the yeah. fastest song they ever recorded. In fact, it was so fast that some of the band was looking at Charlie Watts and Keith Richards like, what are you doing? You know, this is yeah. just like hyperspeed music. Well, you get the sense that Jagger's not really keeping up. Yeah, it's you know, and then there's songs like "All Down the Line," "Happy Tumbling Dice." I mean, there. This is a great rock album. If you just isolated those rockers and put them on a single album, you know, people would have said this is the Great Stones rock record. Um, Yeah, you're
0: right. It would have been the equal
1: of Sticky Fingers,
0: its predecessor.
1: But they spread those rockers across four sides of music, and uh, there's a lot of texture in this record, and I want to sort of focus on some of those tracks that explore the avenues that the Stones were just beginning to really explore during this period. Um, You know, particularly uh, Keith Richards' dalliance with country music and his uh, fortuitous meeting uh, with Graham Parsons the previous year, uh, he was really enamored with Graham and you know Graham's passion for country music because I don't, I don't think the the Stones and Keith in particular had taken country music all that seriously, even though it was a very close cousin to their beloved blues. Yeah. Uh, but when when people like Graham Parsons entered their life and sort of educated them uh, about the nuances of great country music, well, and they started Parsons, to pay
0: attention. You know, for, for people who don't know, uh, Graham Parsons is generally considered now the godfather of alternative country. Mm-hmm. You know, not hokey Nashville country, but real gritty country, and pairing that with rock.
1: line burrito brothers and also bringing the uh, country nuances to the birds in the uh, sweetheart of the rodeo yeah. <laughs> So around this period, Graham Parsons was kind of the it boy in in rock and roll circles. He was really influencing a lot of uh, a lot of the rockers. Not selling any records, but influencing no. other artists. But but I, and also a, a you know a heroin addict. Um, you know he spent a, a few months in Nellcote. Eventually, get this. You know, amidst all that iniquity that was going on there, all that decadence, Graham Parsons was even too unruly for that place. They kicked him out. They go, yeah, how bad you're just you have a to bad, be? bad dude. But meanwhile, his influence is deeply felt on this record. And I don't mean to diminish Graham at all as a musician and as an artist. He was an incredibly gifted guy. And and Keith was right to hang around him from the musical standpoint. Um, so you hear a song like Torn and Frayed. And, and here's a song that, you know, it's, it's really a key song. I mean, Mick sings it. But here's a Keith song, and I, in in some ways, you know, is it Mick singing about Keith, or is it Keith writing about Graham Parsons? Hmm. And are Keith and Graham really the same person? I mean, has anybody actually seen them in the room together? You know, yeah, it's yeah, kind of yeah, one of those yeah. kind of deals. They really became, you know, two peas in a pod to overstate a cliche. Uh, but you know, they were they were linked at the hip there for a year year and a half. Um, you know. Uh, Richards, to this day, uh, lauds Parsons for, for teaching him about uh, the Everly Brothers and those uh, cross harmonies.
2: I can make you mine Taste your lips of wine time, night or day
1: And you can hear that attempt at harmonizing here in Torn and Freight. It is, just as the song says, torn and frayed, those harmonies that Keith sings sounds like some guy that just didn't walk in off the street and decided to sing along with whatever was going on. After a sixteen hour bender. Yeah, and and, you know, people like, oh, that's so so off and so wrong. But it fits the vibe of this record perfectly. And it's a beautiful song. Um, They bring in uh, one of Parson's friends, Al Perkins, a very excellent pedal steel guitar player, uh, added pedal steel to this song and adds to the country vibe of it. Between that and those ragged harmonies, but also what the song is talking about, this... Raggedy troubadour. Nobody wants to look at him. He looks like he's just a smelly street bum. But then when he starts to play his guitar, mm. that's going to steal your heart away. That's what yeah. the song says. And I think, you know, Keith was really talking about himself. In a lot of ways, you know, not only, not just Graham but himself, uh, that at at the soul of this record, it was a musical soul. You know, people talk about the heroin and the decadence, but it was about those guitars and about those voices uh, making this this beautiful noise in that basement. Torn and frayed from the Rolling Stones on Sound Opinions.
0: That is torn and frayed by the Rolling Stones from their classic 1972 double album, Exile on Main Street. After a short break, we'll continue our album dissection in a minute on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. I'm Jim DeRogatis, my partner is Greg Cott, and that is a bit of Happy by the Rolling Stones from the 1972 immortal album Exile on Main Street. I've been living with this album since, I don't know, 14 or 15, and and I still haven't plumbed its depths.
1: Jim, you can't talk about this album without uh, talking about the unconventional way it was recorded, which resulted in that signature vibe. Title
2: five, take one.
1: So this recording session in this basement, uh, mythical, uh, myth-making moment in the band's history and rock and roll history. What was that really all about? They parked their mobile studio outside of the house. Um, Immediately there's problems because there's the communication between the mobile studio and the basement is non-existent. They can't communicate. They can't talk to the band. The communication system is all off. So the engineers in the recording studio have to run out and tell the band when to start and stop. (laughs) I mean, it is the most efficient. Here's the biggest band in the world and they can't even set up a decent studio apparatus. I I wouldn't mind that for sound opinions, though, if our producers couldn't talk to us. It's amazing. I'm sure the Stones were probably like, you know, careful what you wish for. One of those kind of scenarios. The ventilation was so bad, as we pointed out. It was dark. It was in the summer. Uh, it was very hot down there. The instruments kept going out of tune. And and the, the band would tell these stories about trying to get through tunes quickly before the instruments went out of tune. So there was all these issues. Then there was a the mixing issue where, where Jagger's vocals never seemed to be very clear. They always seemed to be buried in the mix. So there were all these issues with the recording. Uh, they had become vampires because the the, the daytime was so... Uh, stinky and hot that they started recording at 8 o'clock and recorded all through the night. They were literally vampires. Yes, yes. <laughs> the, the sunshine bores the daylights out of me. That That's where that line comes from.
0: They're the ancillary members of the Stones. Bobby Keys, uh, uh, Jimmy Miller is is around, and he's playing drums on some tracks. Oh, yeah. So you you often don't even have all of the Stones. Uh, on these
1: recordings. Well, that, that's the thing. The, 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 we're running on Keith time here, and, 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 and Charlie Watts would tell stories like Keith would just sit in a chair for 12 hours and play a riff over and over again, and the band would sort of go, come in and out around him. Then finally Keith nods off, everybody leaves, and then one of the engineers would get a call an hour later, and Keith would be saying, where'd you go? You know, yeah, I just came up yeah. with a counterpoint riff, and it was kind of this, this methodology that Keith was using uh, to record, and apparently, he did this very uh, quite a bit during early in his career where he would just play a chord almost hypnotically over and over again or a riff over and over again and then emerging from that haze like what's he doing why is he doing it for so long would be a counterpoint uh, melody that he would come up with and yeah, suddenly yeah. a song would be born
0: you see that really uh, effectively in the uh, Goddard movie Sympathy for the Devil when the title track that song comes together out of this aimless wandering mm-hmm. jam and you're like what are they doing wasting our time and Goddard lets the whole scene on play and you see a song born
2: in the
1: It was an odd way to make a record, for sure. It was a trying method. Uh, it, it, would, it was driving Mick Jagger nuts because uh, the producer, Jimmy Miller, was falling under Keith's wing. Uh, they were both doing heroin. Mick was upset with the way the recording sessions were going in terms of just what he heard in the mixes, which is one reason why, even though a lot of weight... Is put on Nellcote as the core of Exile in Main Street, and it was. Uh, there were additional recording sessions after that long hot summer yeah. of '71. They went went to L.A. and the idea was to mix the record in L.A. But not only did they mix the record in Los Angeles afterward, but they added quite a bit to the record. They did additional recording. Yeah. They brought in a gospel backing vocalist. There was a, really a whole other recording session in Los Angeles after uh, the recording sessions in France. Except so we really had these two main recording sessions.
0: The basic tracks, though, always sounded like that damp, dark the basement. The Merc was They there. couldn't get rid of it. Right. Right.
1: And people say, well, what did Mick Jagger exactly do for this record? Well, first of all, I think some of Mick's greatest vocal performances are on this record, despite the fact that Jagger himself hates the vocal mix on this record. He hates this record. Yeah, but at the same time, some of the most excellent performances in his career are on this record. Yes. And he also, what he did in Los Angeles... Uh, when they came back to Sunset Sound to uh, uh, ostensibly mix the record, Sweeten ended up <laughs> expanding the recording sessions, adding songs to the record, uh, expanding it into what became a double album. Uh, Jagger really took over. I think he no longer trusted Jimmy Miller because Jimmy Miller, who had been producing them and doing a great job, um, was, was really hooked on heroin and was not really able— to steer the ship the way that Jagger felt it needed to be steered at that point. Well,
0: you also have to realize the Stones are a battle for supremacy throughout their entire career. Mm. At any given moment, Jagger may be ascendant because Keith is smacked out. Or Keith is ascendant because he's clean and Jagger's going through one of innumerable divorces. Mm-hmm. It is a, a partnership like Lennon and McCartney, but it's it's far more uh, of a rivalry. And and a, a, whoever's driving at the time, so Keith had been driving. It was his basement, right? right? He loves this record. Jagger hates this record. Jagger's going to try to take back some control in Los Angeles.
1: And he had some sweetening, you know, but the sweetening is not like, you know, it's, sh- not, very it's sweet. not sweet. It's, it's, it, it, it's the Stones doing their version of it's, sweetening. It's like you're putting icing on on a rotten cheeseburger. So so, uh, Jagger, he's enamored with gospel music. He has been for a number of years, but he goes to see Reverend James Cleveland's services in Los Angeles Mm. while they're in Los Angeles. And he's deeply moved by this. And he hires some of the singers that he sees as part of this gospel scene in Los Angeles to be a part of this record. So people like Clyde King and Vanetta Fields and Tammy Lynn and Shirley Goodman, Joe Green. Uh, Dr. John also happens to be in the area, so they bring Dr. John in. The song Let It Loose, to me, is the underrated moment in this record mm. where everything sort of bottoms out. And the narrator, the person who's sort of been living through this hell, bottoms out. And, and, and nothing is left. He's at the edge of his bed, the room is dark, no one's there. And he finally lets it loose. The tears start to come. He's sobbing uncontrollably. He's gone through a really rough ride, and it's finally hitting him. This this British veneer that you can't let your emotions out mm. suddenly explodes when he's all by himself. Um, you know those opening lines always get me. Who's that woman on your arm?
2: Oh. Oh.
0: Up to do harm.
1: Ostensibly about a woman, right? But it's, I think it's Mick singing about Keith's heroin habit. Mm. I think it's about the heroin that, in Mick's mind, nearly sabotaged these recording sessions. Because um, Mick stayed off that hard stuff. You know, yeah. they were all drug users. You know, Jimmy Miller, Keith Richards, Bobby Keys. These guys were neck he, deep in that Even Charlie stuff. Watts. Yeah, these guys were neck deep in it. And I think I think Mick saw his band falling apart yeah. before his eyes. M- and Mick, they- the uh, graduate of the London School That's of right. Economics, <laughs> yeah. he
0: wants to maintain some control. it's a corporation. We have our own Rolling Stones records now.
1: Absolutely. So you hear this beautiful, uh, heart-wrenching song. I think it's one of Mick's most vulnerable and most impassioned uh, vocal performances. The other element of this song that I think is really cool, and for the longest time I thought it was a keyboard or a Hammond organ, because you hear those Leslie amplifiers Mm -hmm. being used. Those are the guitars. Keith Richards and Mick Taylor are are pumping their guitars through Leslie amplifiers, so, so, the, so you get the this Leslie, sort of watery quality to the to the, the chords.
0: The Leslie speaker is a speaker inside a giant wooden cabinet that revolves, mm-hmm. and so it gives this vibrato and this distortion. And you know, you hear it on on the Beatles' uh, "Tomorrow Never Knows." Yeah. It,
1: it's a great, weird sound. Spooky, you yeah. Know? It's a spooky gospel song. So here are the Stones taking gospel. And take it in someplace else where it hasn't been. It's in that basement. (laughs) Maybe not where the Lord wants it to go. They're recording the final mix of this in L.A., but this is still in that basement in Nelco. This is Let It Loose from the Rolling Stones on Sound Opinions.
0: Let It Loose by the Rolling Stones on Sound Opinions. Greg, we could literally do every one
2: of the <laughs> 18
0: songs on this album. And then there's the reissue Only a couple 14, of years 40 back ago. that, yeah. that, that, that had added more songs. Yeah. I think it's also worth noting, Greg, that some of these songs went back uh, way before 68, some yes. to 64. Um, you know, the Stones at this time had a very fractious relationship with their manager, Alan Klein, mm-hmm. and uh, he was suing them they were suing him there were songs that they thought were good that they wanted to keep out of his grip right exile on main street is the 10th of their career their first double album they're 10 years into this career you know you know we have this idea in our heads that exile on main street is so much of a piece. But as you say, two recording sessions, some songs dated way back. Uh, It is of a piece. There is a sound on this album. It is an album that has been elevated to the level of greatness because of a consistent sound that starts on the first song, doesn't end till the last. It is a sprawling mess of a record that is somehow very consistently of a piece. My Rock Critic Hero. Lester Bangs, reviews the album upon its release. And he says it is emblematic of the ennui and the inarticulate energy and frustration of the time. He quotes that line, I want to shout, but I can't hardly speak.
2: speak. Um,
0: he hates it. He, 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 he dislikes it. He says it's the worst studio album the Stones have ever made. Then he listens mm-hmm. 20 or 30 or 40 times more. And in the very next issue of Cream Magazine, mm-hmm. he says it's the best album the Stones have ever made. Hard to hear at first, the precision and fury behind the Merc sure that you'll come back, hearing more with each playing. It's an album about casualties and partying in the face of them. The party is obvious. The casualties are inevitable. So this is a hard album. If yeah. you've never heard it before, you ain't gonna get it the first ten times.
1: Yeah, you know the, the, that whole idea of the sound was so off-putting to people. Uh, Jimmy Miller said, "You know, we 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 took convenience over sound. It was easy to make the record there, and we didn't really care what it sounded like." And it and, and initially that that took critics aback. Here was an environment in which the work and the play, the socializing and the record making just became a blur. You could not dissociate the fact that Graham Parsons and William Burroughs and all these junkie friends of Keith Richards were hanging out uh, at, from the music. Uh, yeah. There's there uh, an incident that happened at Nelcote in France. They, had, they hired this top line chef. <laughs> and the band got up too late to eat any of his food, and and you know Keith would ask for a hamburger, and there was yeah. this you know gourmet. I was going to say they Ro- out the
0: Rolling Stones ate. Yeah, they, they didn't
1: care about that kind of stuff. So the chef leaves disheartened after a couple of months. Keith hires a couple of the buddies that he made in nearby Nice to to do the cooking for the mm-hmm. band. While the band is on holiday, they go up to Paris for a long weekend to just take a break from their recording. The, the guys who were there sh- hired to be their chefs steal all their gear, their guitars, <laughs> the saxophones. Keith buys Bobby Keys a whole new set of saxophones oh. after that, so Bobby Keys came out ahead. For the Stones, money was nothing, but at the same time, there was this dissolute in- atmosphere And that really uh, seeped into the recording. You know, some of the reviews were, you know, as you said, not very nice. The Rolling Stones at their most dense and impenetrable. That was Mm -hmm. the Rolling Stones review. Um, A a catastrophe of sloppiness, another one said. But in retrospect, I think we see this record now. At least I do. This is a visit to the dark side of all music that interested the Stones almost from day one. Blues, soul, Early rock and roll. They country. even make even country, they even make gospel sound kind of stonesy in their own kind of lurid way. You know, it it, it it's it sounded like a record that w- served as a soundtrack for like a, a pulp fiction novel.
2: Gotta sweep like an angel, I'm up, like an up on the mile. Well, she ain't no star, but she sure the good. She moves so fast, but you got in danger. Yeah, you got in chains, but you keep on bullshit. What you take off bet, she counted up your minutes. Counting up your days, she's a creep that in.
0: I'm going to share. Perhaps I'm going to overshare. Uh, when I'm in college, I make a road trip with a buddy from New Jersey to an art school in Reading, Pennsylvania, and uh, he had a paramour there, you know, and uh He dumps me. He takes off with her and I uh, (laughs) uh, take a psychedelic substance, uh, the big one, okay and uh, sit watching a white noise on a TV screen for about 10 hours waiting for him. And then we get back in the car and we're going to head back to New Jersey and we're driving down this road. It's a a country blacktop in the the farm, and there's cows and stuff, right? (laughs) There ain't no cows in Jersey City. We're in this idyllic situation of rolling green hills. The sun is coming up. We're driving into the sun. The sun is rising. It's beautiful. And we had a boombox, and we only had one tape. We had Exile on Main Street. And we're listening to Shine a Light the penultimate song on the album. And we just keep playing it and playing it and playing it. And we're driving in the sun. We got to West Virginia when we realized we were going the wrong way, mm-hmm. the opposite way from New Jersey. And then, boy, were we screwed. Um, there is a hint of redemption a hint of the promise at the end of all of this decadence and murkiness. Uh, It's the second-to-last song on the album. It's followed by one more tune, Soul Survivor. We made it through. We somehow came out the other end. But Shine a Light, pulling on those gospel influences, uh, you know, may the good Lord shine a light on you, make every song you sing your favorite tune. We've somehow come out the other side. Mm -hmm. To me, the story of Exile on Main Street is, uh, you know, like Dante, the Inferno. We're going through all the different circles of hell, and then we don't wind up uh, burning in eternity. (laughs) We have hope because we have this music. Make every song you sing your favorite tune. Uh, there is redemption. You know, it's mm. sti- I'm still getting goosebumps now with the fact, you know, as you know, I believe that your life can be saved by rock and roll. Mm. You can go through some horrible, dark places, and then you come out the other side. Rolling Stones, shine a light on sound opinions. As always, we want to hear from you. Do you have any memories of Exile on Main Street? If you do, maybe you weren't really there. Either way, call and leave a message on our hotline, 888-859-1800, or find us on Twitter and Facebook. Up next, we'll talk about how the album has influenced generations of rockers, from the New York Dolls to the White Stripes. That's in a minute on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
1: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with my partner, Jim Dirigatis. and today we've been talking about Exile on Main Street, that classic 1972 Rolling Stones album. Now, as we talked about earlier, you know a lot of critics panned Exile when it was originally released, but uh, some of those critics eventually warmed up to the record. Uh, it has become regarded as a masterpiece in subsequent decades. In addition to becoming critically acclaimed, uh, the album's also been used as a reference point by a lot of Bands, Many generations of bands were working in a variety of of, of sub-genres, sort of the post-exile generation. They got off on the fact that this was an outlier, even in the Stones catalog. You know, that dirty, murky, off-the-cup kind of vibe that they got in that recording studio. The idea that you could attack all these different genres of music and make it your own with just guitar bass and drums you know you know saxophone obviously some keyboards but essentially the the core rock and roll instruments being used to make this really ambitious wide ranging masterpiece without being too precious about any of it
0: well you know you think about the band's uh, music from big pink right and sure. there's a celebration of all that had preceded dylan and the band in american music but it's kind of a good time uh folky hootenanny vibe whereas exile they're... on main street is uh the meaning uh, of the satanic ritual you know you know in dark robes with unspeakable deeds being done in the middle of the night in the dark
2: All down the
0: I think there are several ways to look at the influence of Exile on Main Street. Number one, I think when any rock band and producer want to say, let's get dark and dirty and mysterious and a little bit frightening right now, they say, give me some Exile, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, so there's a shorthand in the recording studio. That's number one. Um, Number two, there's the kind of thematic, uh, we are now hitting uh, rock bottom. You know, addicts and, and alcoholics talk about you have to bottom out before you can begin to reclaim mm-hmm. life and journey toward the light. Um, and, and this is, I think, the one album in rock <laughs> history that that sums that up best. So when uh, a songwriter is thinking, I'm going to tell about this rather harrowing mm. journey, but there is light at the end, they say, give me some exile. Yeah. <laughs> so say, give me some exile lyrically, give me some exile uh, 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 sonically. Uh, let me talk for a minute about, about the bands that have been influenced. Uh, I think John Spencer of the John Spencer Blues Explosion uh, is, is key here, as is Neil Haggerty, the guitarist in Royal Trucks. Their first band together, Pussy Galore, uh, key to the 80s noise rock sound, fellow travelers with Sonic Youth. They had Sonic Youth's old mm-hmm. drummer, Bob Burt. They covered Exile on Main Street in its entirety. Yeah. I think it was a cassette-only release. i got to go dig mine out. <laughs> We hear a lot of Exile at times, not always, in The White Stripes.
2: Well, I have they got some shout-out for me? Anybody got a Christmas tree? i Can you part with a toilet seat? A drop-up, a drop-up, a drop-up, come on and give it to me. Well, we want to get it clean
0: In The Strokes, uh for better or worse, in The Black Crows, The Hives, Giant Sand. So there are, are times when all of these bands and many, many others are dialing in that sound or that attitude. It was interesting that in Chicago, at the height of the alternative discovery of Chicago, you know, the Smashing Pumpkins are on top of the charts and Urge Overkill, there was a lot going on in the underground, uh, specifically inspired by Exile on Main Street. Mm-hmm. And we have Liz Fair, yeah. another Chicagoan, her debut album. Exile in Guyville. Guyville's the name that uh, hipsters in the 90s gave Wicker Park. Uh, Wicker Park, made famous by Nelson Algren, Mm. man with the golden arm. Heroin addicts used to hang out in Wicker Park. Now there's a lot of expensive restaurants (laughs) we can't afford to eat at. Um, Liz Fair, in a brilliant move to suck up to rock critics like you and me and all the rest, says that her debut, Exile in Guyville, is a song-by-song response Answer record to the Rolling Stones' mm-hmm. "Exile on Main Street." Everybody reprints this. Everybody like loves this. I've never heard that. I think "Exile and God" is a great record. I think "Exile on Main Street" is a great record. I don't think they're connected, but that was a nice bit of marketing on Liz's part. Yeah. 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 We also had a great band here that grew out of the ashes of another good band. Friends of Betty became a band called Red Red Meat. Mm -hmm. and then Tim Rattilli the leader of that band uh became the leader of Caliphone. all of these bands um Which at various times worked with producer uh, Brian Deck and Brad Wood, who worked on Exile on Main Street. They were emulating the weird sound, the weird, murky, uh, you know, basement sound of Exile on Main Street, but also the American music canon, the weirder little things that were held in grandma's trunk in the attic, right? What Grill Marcus called the the real weird America, Mm -hmm. that kind of music. You know, the Stones are doing it from the British perspective, but here was bands, uh, you know, in America, Red Red. And meat weren't the only one, but they were going to those strange sounds of folk and blues and country, and and bringing them into the modern era. No doubt about
1: it. I mean, I, the the influence of this record is wide and deep. I mean, even even relative contemporaries, bands who just came up right after the Stones' uh, heyday, you know, a band like Aerosmith, but band like the New York Dolls mm. were oh, really dolls. influenced yeah. by the vibe, the look, the feel of the Stones with those rough guitars. Try
2: it. Go pick it up. Take- Don't know what I'm doing what
1: you know it you know later on I think any album any band that uh, you know had the ambition especially a band from kind of the wrong side of the tracks, that decided to make a double album. Yeah, they couldn't yeah. ignore Exile on Main Street. You know? It was yeah. one thing, you know, the White Album was an important double album, but I don't think any band felt like we can make our white album. But no. Yes, we can no. do something like Exile and you know, Exile it, on Main Street.
0: It, it must be said, it also has been uh, cited to apologize for innumerable lousy sounding four track cassette yeah, releases. You know right. anytime you have a record that sounds like like thoroughly uh, unmitigated crap, you say, Oh, I was going for Exile on Main Street. That
1: exile vibe, but you know, I think the Clash is London calling owes something mm. to exile on Main Street. Wilco, we, I talked to a bunch to, to that band around the time that they made Being There. And, you know, they, that was in yeah, the no, back of their brains bad. when they were making that record. And I also think a, a band like The Replacements, those first four or five Replacements albums, including Let It Be, uh, have a very much of a, a murky, stonesy vibe about yeah. them. Uh you know, going into contemporary uh bands, early Kings of Leon, we can laugh about them now. But yes, go yes. back to those early Kings of Leon records, they are heavily influenced by the stones during this period.
2: Watch the bar
1: A band like the Black Keys mm-hmm. in the early days, influenced by that blues vibe that the Stones were getting. The, the influence of the Stones, in particular from this era, uh, runs wide indeed. It must be said, we say this in our book, The Beatles
0: Versus The Rolling Stones, that the Stones have now not made a good album since Some Girls in 1978. You, you'll argue with me about one or two after that. But, but really, yeah. the last brilliant album, That's 1978, uh, they have now sucked three times longer <laughs> than they were great. But do you remember when we saw them play the Aragon Ballroom? 4,500 yeah. seats, right? Sure. You know, the problem with the Stones, we both say, is that they have easily 100 of the greatest rock songs ever recorded in the canon, but they always play the same 15. You're right. Over and over. Brown Sugar, Honky Talk Woman, over and over. Jumpy mm-hmm. Jack Flash, right? That night... They did seven, eight, nine, ten songs from Exile in a row. Do you remember that? Name? Yeah, I,
1: mean, I think they started with like nine songs. They either never played live or only very sparingly played live. Yeah, and it was just an amazing revelation of what that band could still was still capable of.
0: Yeah, I I still care about the Stones because there's always the possibility that maybe we'll maybe get that again. We will get that again. Yeah, and like, if not, this album is immortal. For more sound opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. We also have a resuscitated message board on our Facebook group. As always, the show was produced by Brendan Banisak, Alex Claiborne, Iona Contreras, and Andrew Gill.
1: On sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say.
2: New messages. Hey, what's up, guys? This is Mike from New York City, and uh, I want to weigh in on the uh, songs you love by bands that you don't. Now, this is a band that I don't love, and I think a lot of people don't love them, and it's called Bon Jovi. I can't stand Bon Jovi. Anytime Living on a Prayer comes on and you're in a bar or or even worse, at a karaoke night, I mean, it's very upsetting. And I have always stood by the idea that they always should have been a one-hit wonder. And the one hit was called Runaway, their first big song. And it's just so hooky. It's got that keyboard hook, which is actually done by E Street Band keyboardist Roy Bitten And also, Richie Sambora doesn't play on this track. It's Tim Pierce who plays that rocking guitar on there that you just can't resist great song oh please they just should have gone away after that song all right thanks guys keep it up hi this is brian from campus florida just finished listening to the
0: the one song that jim and greg like by bands they
2: aren't fond of or don't like my pick is no surprises by radiohead fantastic song but i cannot get into any of their other music no surprises it's such a cool song from the riff it has kind of a melancholy beach boys thing going on and uh it sounds like a full band is playing as opposed to just tom york fiddling around with knobs and such. so that's my pick thank you Hey guys, it's Chuck from Chicago I'm listening to your show about Songs you love from bands you don't And uh, I gotta tell you, the one that pops into my head immediately Is Champagne Supernova by Oasis Now, Oasis is a band that I've never really cared for They've had some catchy hooks the lead singer's voice has got to be one of the most grating things of all time. It's most nasally, monotone, like straight tone singing voice. And every single song, it's the same style. So it really turns me off after a while. But I have to say, that guy's weird voice works perfectly on Champagne Supernova. The, the instrumentation, the, the arrangement, and his voice all go together to create one super cool song that's the bottom line Just wanted to give you my take talk to you later someday you will find me caught the landslide in a champagne supernova a champagne supernova Hi, my name is Mario and the uh, song I love by a band that I hate is Gone by Insync. I'm almost embarrassed to admit to that, but I really like that song. Hate the band. Gone by Insync. Thank you. You're, 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 baby, you're, you're, you're gone. Baby girl, Gone. Baby girl, Yo. Gone.